We ended last week talking about the Spirit's leading of sinners, and we quickly had gone over some of these summary thoughts and the summarization of the leading in the sinner's life. Uh, obviously, the phrase, the leading of the Holy Spirit, is one of those phrases tossed around, I think, haphazardly far too often in our world. And so you see the, the phrase being used legitimately in God's Word, so we sought to explore what exactly did it mean. And we looked real quickly at these five verses, and if you happen to have your handouts, you're going to see them on the right-hand side there. But the, the points from these verses, of course, are that God's power to save is in the gospel. That must be obeyed, must be heard, uh, it must be understood uh, for that to, uh, to produce that biblical faith. As Romans 1.16 happens to say, it is the power unto salvation, but it's got to be heard, as we know, verse 17 there. Uh, if, if it's going to be producing faith, because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So by listening, by hearing the Word of God, uh, that Word that has been given to us by the Spirit, uh, God will lead us into salvation. We also see in Acts chapter 17 the fact there that believers were produced when people searched the Scriptures with a readiness of mind to learn the truth. Uh, there in Acts chapter 17, a very uh, distinct challenge for us, I think even today, that if we want to know the truth, if we want to understand what the truth is, there's only one way to the truth. And that's not just through Jesus Christ and His blood, but the truth is given to us, it is revealed to us by God through His Spirit, and that would be in His Word. And so believers are produced when people search the Scriptures, as we see in Acts, uh, learning the truth. The Gospel message, thirdly, has the power to bring about there, it says, uh, a new life, a regenerated life. Uh, and there we see the new life there is in the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And so that gospel message is only conveyed by one way, and that's by words. And those words that are conveying the gospel message come from the Spirit. And so the Spirit guides us through His inspired words uh, so that we will know the truth and will bring about that new life. Uh, fourth, we are renewed, we are regenerated, we are brought forth, whatever word you want to use there, by the word of truth. It is the word of truth which goes into our life and helps sanctify it. How does it do that? It brings about obedience. It brings about action. It brings about that true biblical faith, which is not just a belief, but biblical faith is as actions upon belief. It is the idea that uh, once we hear something, we take action. In fact, James chapter 1, verse 18 talks about the idea of us being brought forth by the word of truth. And that means that we become renewed or regenerated as men and women once we allow that word of truth to take action and take hold in our lives. And also, also as we see fifthly, with regard to the, the leading of the Spirit, to be healed, one must be converted one must be converted. That includes an understanding. That includes a perception. That includes a hearing aspect. Uh, the conversion does not happen miraculously according to the Scriptures. There's no miraculous conversion you can ever point to in God's Word. So if we want to be Bible people doing Bible things in Bible ways, when you look at the Scriptures, what you see is a conversion that does occur. But it's not a miraculous conversion. It's not the Spirit coming upon somebody. It's not the Spirit leading them in some miraculous form or fashion. But it's in fact the looking at the Scriptures, the hearing of the Word of God, as Romans 1 talks about, be increasing and developing 
developing your faith uh, because of those things which you are hearing. You understand those things, you perceive them to be truth, and you take action upon them. That conversion process occurs because the Spirit is leading you through the inspired words that God has given us in Scripture. In the first century, it may have acted a little differently. They didn't have the inspired word at that point. So, of course, the Spirit would have been leading them by the inspired words of the apostles or the other teachers that may have had miraculous gifts to be able to convey to them those truths and be able to back it up and evidence it by the miraculous uh, things that, that were performed to produce and provide evidence for the truth and understanding. We don't need that today. And we're going to get into that discussion, hopefully, as we talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But you see there that the conversion always occurs because the words of God are conveyed to us by the Spirit, some way, form, or fashion. In today's world, we see it in His Word, in the inspired Word of God that has been God-breathed to us. And so the conversion and the, the impact or the leading of the Holy Spirit upon those who are sinners is really characterized by these five main things. Uh, as you look in the scriptures there. It is not a miraculous leading. It is not a leading which becomes some type of a supernatural feeling or emotion, but in fact it becomes a very reasoned and rational and understanding approach where the leading of the Holy Spirit is understood to signify knowledge and ability to understand versus some supernatural feeling or mystical uh, leading uh, by some unseen being. And so it directly contradicts a lot of what we see in the world around us and what some of our religious friends seem to believe and to promote and talk about. And if you really think about it, it helps solve this, the, the problems that some of them even have, especially atheists or those that have become atheists because they haven't experienced this leading of the Holy Spirit. Because what this indicates to us is that everyone can experience the leading of the Spirit by opening up God's Word and listening to it by reading it, by understanding it, by comprehending, by understanding and perceiving that there is truth therein and to be able to take action upon that. The leading of the Holy Spirit occurs through the Word. And so what we see there is His leading on sinners. Now what I wanted to kind of transition into is a little bit here in a couple of discussions about the leading of those who are believers. And there is a distinctive difference uh, between the leading of the Spirit upon those who are sinners, who are alien sinners, uh, with regard to God and those who are belie believing, uh, baptized believers. When I use the word believers, I'm always going to be including that as being someone who, uh, like the New Testament talks about in the book of Acts, that has been converted truly and has gone, undergone the, not just the, the plan of salvation, so to speak, uh, but has specifically been baptized. Uh, and so when you see believers in, in Acts, the, the believers adding together, the disciples there grouping together being uh, faithful believers are always including those who have uh, been saved. You see an admonition of those, of Christians, or to Christians, by Paul and the other writers of the New Testament, especially in the epistles of Paul, though, uh, the encouragement to be kind of set apart and be distinct. Peter talks about this as we are a royal priesthood and we, you know, we have this kind of sanctified behavior that we're supposed to behave and, and do. And, and Romans chapter 1, or Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, you're going to see uh, there how Paul admonishes us to have a transforming of the mind. If you remember that verse, it says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, and the mercies of God to present your 
your bodies a living and a holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And if you flip over a couple of chapters and look over in Romans chapter 15, verse 16, you'll see the admonition continues there as Paul talks to the Roman brethren there. He says there, uh, chapter 15, verse 16, Um, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest of the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. His purpose and his goal in his ministry was to be able to present himself as a living sacrifice and also to present those who he was going to, those who he was ministering to, to be hopefully for them to become acceptable and to become sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And that kind of underscores the, the, the process and the idea of difference between believers versus the sinners. Um, we've got, in, and I'll call Scott out because he's in here and I can do that. Uh, I even do it when he's not here, but, you know, he's here today. So uh, we've gotten into some conversations. If you look in the scriptures, nowhere are believers, are Christians called sinners. Well, I challenge you, if you find it, let me and Scott know, because we tried to look, we can't find it. It talks about committing sin, but it doesn't classify us as being sinners. Uh, and so if you have become a baptized believer, if you are a Christian, uh, it's very interesting there to kind of think about the concept. You have moved away from being classified in that group of being the sinners. You're no longer alien sinners. Now, you may commit a sin every now and then. You may do things that uh, are not exactly true. And, and the wonderful blessings we have, like in 1 John, talks about the blood of Christ doth continually cleanse us of those sins. So it kind of gets into a good conversation. That's much deeper than I want to get this morning. But what I want to kind of point out that the fact here is that as Christians, we are distinctive and different than alien sinners of this world. At least we should be. And as Paul says, and Paul characterizes it here for us, is we are supposed to be transformed. We are supposed to be renewed. And as he says in Romans chapter 15 and verse 16, the idea there is to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So when you become a Christian, your life becomes different. You are in a different place. You are held to a different standard. And some of us forget that. Some of us fall short way too often, I understand. I'm right there with you. Uh, we're not perfect, and by that means, I'm not saying that we are not, uh, we, we should be always striving for perfection, but I know none of us will ever attain it. But when it comes to the differentiation here between the Spirit leading, there is a difference between Him leading the sinners because His whole point and purpose and God and Jesus and everybody's participation and involvement in leading sinners should be to leading them to salvation, right? Once you get to that point in time, it becomes different when, the, when Christ or when God or when the Spirit leads us as Christians, there is a difference there that we've got to understand. There is a different purpose that is expected. And in the history of the church, you're going to see that there's different ways that the Spirit has led Christians. And of course, we know that there were no Christians until Acts chapter 2 occurred. That was when the the establishment of the church. So if you go all the way back to Acts chapter 2, you're going to start seeing a way that there is a leading of the Holy Spirit upon those who are believers in Christ. And you're going to see there a differentiation and a difference there uh, for them. Now, there is a a little bit of overlay, and I don't want to get too bogged down in this if I can avoid it. 
But in Acts chapter 2, of course, as we would see the beginning and the initiation of the church, the miraculous there, of course, then leads to the believers, the believing occurring. So in reality, there is a little bit of miraculous that does occur to help lead uh, sinners here at the outset. But from that point on, uh, there is an underscoring of the, the, the miraculous and helping promote the words that are spoken uh, through the Spirit. Uh, there's always an involvement there. But we do know that there is a certain leading that occurred with regard to the Spirit upon the lives of Christians. And I want to look real quickly as an overview as we look real quick at the New Testament as how uh, the Spirit would lead believers. First of all, you see here that there's a miraculous way. By miraculous means, this would have been a temporary way. But you see, uh, when the church was first formed, there was no need for a period of miraculous leading. Uh, I mean, there was a need. Did I say no need? There was a need. Uh, so the Spirit miraculously led the apostles we see, of course, in Acts chapter 2 uh, to begin things. But in reality, they weren't Christians yet at that point, at least not all those that were impacted. Uh, you would say the apostles were part of Christ's disciples at that juncture in time. Uh, so you see the miraculous leading, though, of his followers later on as well as you go through the book of Acts. And as you think about the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 16, Paul's led miraculously, and Peter's led miraculously in Acts chapter 10, Philip in Acts chapter 8, and, and others, as you look through the uh, New Testament historical book there, the beginning of the church, you're going to see the miraculous leading of um, those who were going out and teaching and preaching and being sent and being instructed by God to go to a certain place and teach a certain person and, and do a certain thing. Uh, the miraculous, though, would be temporary as you go on to read in the New Testament. And as we talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, we'll kind of get into this a little bit more with regard to why uh, are, are they no longer needed. But as the miraculous was temporary, as we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 through 13, it's really no longer used or no longer needed by the Holy Spirit is really the best way to phrase that. Uh, there's no longer a necessity any longer for the miraculous leading, but there, were, there was a miraculous leading. You cannot dispute that. You cannot look at the scriptures and see uh, that there was not a miraculous leading. So you uh, can't avoid it, and we see it in the scripture. Second way you see it is that there was a leading of believers through the scripture. There would be scriptural instructions that are uh, conveyed to them. And there's several verses we can look at and, and see, but there is a reason for uh, the scriptural instructions, this leading by Scripture, uh, by the Spirit in the New Testament. Uh, the New Testament, of course, in this gospel, the saving gospel must be preached uh, because truth is found inside of God's Word. Right? That's what Galatians chapter 1, verse 18 talks about. The, the truth is found within the words of God. And so those things had to be, had to be taught, had to be preached uh, where they win. The Spirit guides believers through scriptures for several different reasons, and I've put three of them up on the screen for you this morning. You see one reason uh, that is uh, needed for scriptural instruction by the Spirit for those who are believers is to avoid error. You want to make sure that what has been taught is in fact true, that is correct. And you see an example and an admonition in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 20. Of course, verse 1, a lot of us can, can think about that. It's preach the word, be instant in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering, right? So the idea is that we are built up, we are encouraged, we are told the truth so that we can reprove and rebuke and exhort. That's kind of the idea of correcting, right? You can't correct unless you have the truth. 
And that's what uh, verse 20 goes on to kind of uh, underscore there in 1 Timothy chapter 4. So scriptural leading, the leading of the Holy Spirit of believers through scripture is needed to avoid error. It's also, uh, it allows us to gain all spiritual blessings uh, by having the word of God and having scripture uh, being conveyed to us. If you look over in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so the idea of being born again, uh, the idea of having blessings in our lives come from looking at the scriptures and looking at having those wonderful blessings that are given to us by God. Now again, I... I I think that we need to look at uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. I think I may have the wrong book on that, I believe. But you see verse 2, it says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. And so there we are giving everything that we need. Those tremendous blessings that we have in life are given to us through the words that God has conveyed to us. It has been given to us, has been conveyed to us, and by having this uh, scripture uh, relaying these wonderful things to us, we will be able to obtain all those blessings of which God has bestowed upon us. And the other thing is to gain spiritual security. The idea of having the assurance, the uh, blessed assurance that what we are doing is in fact what God wants us to do. And look over with me to 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. 1 John 5, verse 13. It says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. It is a blessed assurance for us to have the spiritual security in our lives, to know that when we follow and do these things, that the Scripture is going to give us the ability to know assuredly that we in fact have the eternal life which God has promised to us. It's not a vague or ambiguous uh, lifestyle as a Christian. It shouldn't be at least. Uh, as a Christian, we should be able to have this confidence that John is talking about here as he relayed these things to the recipients of his letter and as the Spirit inspired him with these wonderful words, uh, it applies to us as well. These things that I have written, these things which are in this book, these things which have been given to us by the Spirit, give us the assurance so that we know that we have eternal life. That is uh, finding spiritual security. And the leading of the Holy Spirit through scriptures uh, allowed not only those in the first century church to have this spiritual security, but also gives us that opportunity and chance to also have that assurance as well. And also the scriptures uh, talk about the leading of the Spirit by providential means. And this is a little bit more difficult, I guess, to grasp. Providence, as you know, is a word never used in the Bible. It is a concept developed really in a word concept uh, by man to explain the operations of what the scriptures talk about. And that would be the working of God, the working of, um, uh, of supernatural, I guess, being, however, in natural ways is the best way I like to put it. Uh, the idea of uh, natural uh, abilities or natural happenings and occurrences that actually go toward uh, the fulfillment of something that is much bigger in, in scope. An indirection operation of God is some way, some people say, an indirection operation of God uh, through what appears to be stri strictly natural phenomena. 
And so I believe the scriptures, as you look at it, can also convey that the, that the Spirit is involved with respect to providential operations. As you go through and look at the scriptures, you'll see, of course, first and foremost, we've got to understand what we talked about at the very beginning. When you hear God and when you look at God, the fact that God is involved in providential means would necessarily infer that the Spirit who is God, who is part of that three-in-one being, uh, was also involved in some of the providential things. And so as we look at that, we can see some of the scriptures that would support this uh, with regard to the Spirit working providentially. I primarily want to look over as a good example, I think, uh, in Acts chapter 16 real quick. I don't want to dwell and get bogged down too much in this. Uh, but with regard to the Spirit's operation and allowing uh, and helping things occur naturally to help fulfill supernatural or divine purposes. You see in Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 7, an, an account here by Paul as uh, they were talking or as he was traveling, of course. And, and verse 6, it says, They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mycenae, they were traveling to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And so this scripture is a lot of times looked at by those uh, much more learned than I and say that there is an involvement here of the Spirit providentially to hinder them. Now, how exactly did that occur? We don't know. But a lot of people argue and say that it's very possible that something occurred on the road to go there or on, in the midst of traveling. And Paul then attributes that because of his knowledge to the Spirit preventing them to go. I guess it's very possible, too, the Spirit directly said don't go. So I don't want to necessarily discount that. Uh, it's very possible that the Spirit specifically said as they were going, say, no, I don't permit you to go that way. Uh, you know, God, you know, we don't, don't turn around and go a different way. Uh, so we know that the Spirit does speak. You know, to Philip, Acts chapter 8, we saw that kind of concept there. So the, the idea of the Spirit directly doing something instead of providentially is a very, very real possibility. But another example I'd like to look at before we move on to this is look over with me to Luke chapter 11, verse 13. Luke eleven thirteen, and um, here, yeah, Luke eleven thirteen. This is Jesus, of course, speaking. Uh, he was talking to his disciples, and this is after. If you look in verse uh, verse one here, this is after uh, the disciples had come to him and said, "You know, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples." Well, you get on down in verse thirteen, and it says there, Jesus, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, put your finger there and flip over with me to a parallel passage in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verse 11. Matthew seven eleven is, of course, again, a part of Jesus' um, discussion. And it's a parallel passage, I think a very, almost not word for word necessarily, and you'll see the difference. But it says there, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? And I think it's very interesting to kind of look at those two passages and see that the Spirit uh, is specifically included in one, but not necessarily the other. Now, what does that mean? Well, for those of us who want to try and get into such deep discussions, which I would say it's not necessarily necessary, um, but uh, you look at this and see that uh, in, in this parallel text, of course, uh, there is an in instance here, I think, of a, uh, of a, a restatement of truth 
by Christ of something that actually occurs and is part of this. And that's the fact that the Spirit is actually endowed with the gifts of those who ask Him and, and, and allows those things to be attributed or passed along to those who have requested to those in faithful prayer. And so you see the idea that these things being supplied, these good things being supplied that are necessary for sustaining life actually go through and are part of uh, the ultimate cause of these things occurring. And Luke, of course, emphasizes the ultimate cause would be the providential work of the Spirit. Now, again, that's just an argument. I don't want to get bogged down into all this. I don't think it's not absolutely necessary. But I think the Scriptures do show us that there is a very real possibility that, Christ, that, that the Spirit works, as Christ talks about here, in providential means. In fact, that God, including God the Spirit, uh, operates in providential means to bring about those things which are best for His people. And uh, there is a possibility here in the leading of believers we see in the Scripture that at the times here in, indicated in these Scriptures here is that uh, there was a leading by the Spirit in some ways to help fulfill the ultimate purposes like we see in Paul going on these trips and missionary journeys. That there may have been some reason for protection purposes. There may be some other reason for purposes of uh, bringing salvation to another area that was more uh, that was better, better suited possibly for obtaining or receiving the gospel message that Paul was diverted to those places instead. So you see those ways, I think, in the scriptures there possibly about uh, the ways that the Spirit has led Christians uh, to uh, go along with the goals that he has with regard to our lives. Any comments, questions, thoughts? All right. The summarization of God's uh, the Spirit's leading, of course, uh, here, and it's on the back of your handout if you want to uh, fill in those blanks this morning. But it says, God has always led by imparting truth. When man listens and obeys, he is led by the Spirit, of course. Miraculous leading does not exist today. Uh, and we'll get into that more with respect to these miraculous gifts that some like to say still occur. But uh, there is no proof or no need for miraculous leading uh, with regard to those things. And also the instructional ministry is critical to the leading. The idea that uh, we reach out, we, we instruct others with regard to the truth uh, leads us to the conclusion and the ultimate uh, purpose with regard to the leading of the Spirit is that the Holy Spirit uses the Scriptures to lead us today. The Scriptures are in fact God's Word and that's how we are led. That's how we are able to move forward with regard to our Christian lives and our Christian faiths and to be able to uh, do those things which God wants us to fulfill and do in our lives. Let's move on into the lesson six. And any comments or questions while I'm moving and changing PowerPoints? Let me know. Keep in the wrong buttons. All right. All right. All right, Lesson 6 delves into the, the wonderful topic of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And I, this obviously becomes a uh, study for us, those of us who have friends who may believe in such miraculous type of gifts. It is something for us to consider and think about. Sorry for the font, it's messed up, I think. But um, the gifts of the Holy Spirit is a study that I, I found very interesting. And in fact, I think you could probably study much, much longer than this. I think when I previously taught this lesson, it took me at least two weeks to get through it. it will definitely take me two weeks to get through it today because we're already down to about 15 minutes left this morning. But the gifts of the Holy Spirit really help us dive into the purposes of the Spirit in the New Testament a little bit deeper. 
and ways and functions and the ways that the Spirit operated then and may operate now uh, when you think about the gifts of the Holy Spirit because that phrase is used in several different passages of Scripture. Uh, as we start out, I want to kind of make this point. I think this is a good way to begin and think about things, is the fact that at the beginning of every dispensation of time, with regard to our Christian dispensations in time, uh, the miraculous has always been witnessed. And I want to go back to kind of chronicle that as we think about the foundation of these miraculous gifts and maybe the purpose behind them. You think back in the very beginning that what we call the patriarchal age, which really began at creation, and we know the miracles of creation. Whenever you make something from nothing, that is indeed an incredible miracle. And uh, regardless of what type of uh, argument atheists want to make, uh, there really is no description or rationalization or reasoning that really explains how things came to be without the miraculous being in part of it. And so you see the, the idea of supernatural action being taken at the very beginning of time, what we know as, uh, as being the beginning of time. And you see that God's miracles originated everything. The first crops were miraculous. The first oak was never an acorn. Adam and Eve were never babies. Uh, you, know, you can go on and, and, and explore a lot of those different truths and, and, and fundamental concepts. You know, the, the animals were were created without having to go through the birthing process. And all these miraculous things occurred at the very outset of time and became truly a miracle. They were a miracle. They were a supernatural action taken in defiance of those things which are natural. And so if you look at the beginning of creation, you see that those things all occurred. If you look at the Mosaic Age, moving on from the patriarchal, we know going into the Mosaic Age, what occurred to begin and to help... Uh, I guess, bookend the beginning of the, the, the Mosaic Age. Well, you look, you can go back if you want. I don't know really want to, where you want to say it began, Burl. I mean, I guess you could argue when the Mosaic Age began. Usually people would say it began at Mount Sinai when the giving of the Ten Commandments occurred. Some people may even go back to the idea of Moses leading them out of Israel became the beginning of the Mosaic Age. Either way, you've got miracles that occurred. Either way, you've got God reaching down and helping us see these miraculous things occurring, establishing who God was and the fact that they can rely upon Him. You know, the idea of the wanderings in the wilderness, you know, with, with the manna and the, the quail being given freely by God. Uh, the idea of the, the plagues that were seen in Egypt. All these miracles, these supernatural feats that occurred in defiance of what we would say would be the natural norms began the Mosaic Age and, and kept going uh, as being a sign as, as the wonders of God and the authority and the power of God as we go on to see. In the Christian Age, think about the Christian Age. The miraculous that occurred there. Christian age began with the coming of Christ, and really his incarnation would be the beginning of what we would say would be the, the uh, Christian age. And so you think about the Christian age uh, beginning with what? The immaculate conception of Christ, right? The virgin birth uh, of Jesus Christ. You see the miracles then that also helped begin the beginning of his ministry. So even though that may have been 30 years later, that still would have been considered roughly the beginning of the Christian age because they, they were the recognition points of when Christ and his authority began. And so that's the beginning of the Christian age of man. And so he had wonderful miracles. We studied those several quarters ago in here in the auditorium, I know, as we went through his different miracles and the things that he did in defiance of the natural norm. Christ was able to use these supernatural miracles to be able to bring about a recognition of who he was 
and ultimately what he had to say being the truth. And so as you look at these things, what you're also going to see is not just that each age began with miracles, but also the fact that the miraculous was always perpetuated by the non-miraculous. Think about what happened post-Garden of Eden. Did God come in and, and create and, and continue doing some type of a supernatural or miraculous creation after the initial seven days of create or six days, seven days rested, six days of creation? Did he come in and do anything? Well, no, we don't see anything that comes in with regard to it. He allowed that natural order of things to continue. Those non-miraculous things, the results of his miraculous, perpetuated those things which had begun miraculously. Does that make sense? You think about the next section of, of, of time. When you think about the Mosaic Age, uh, you know, the, the supernatural things that were brought into play, the idea that God gave them the Ten Commandments. That's a supernatural feat, by the way, God speaking and bringing about those things. And the, the commandments and all those other things that God established there. Well, what about after that point in time? Did he continually create miracles and do things that defied the supernatural face. Not, I mean, there was a very rare occasion when he did those things, right? There are very rare occasions when, when, Christ, when God would show some type of supernatural or miraculous force there for the people of Israel all the way through Christian age. Why? Because the, the non-miraculous helped perpetuate those things which were miraculous. Think about the, the writing of the words of the prophets or the, the chronicling of, of those things by Moses. You know, the Pentateuch and all the other books of the Old Testament. Those things may have come about somewhat miraculously, supernaturally with regard to inspiration of God. But they chronicle the things that were naturally occurring, the non-miraculous things that were occurring to perpetuate God and those things which he had established. Brother Verl. Stole my thunder with one of my conclusion points, Verl, but you're 100% correct. God establishes something. He has no need to establish it again. It's done. It's done. So he does not reiterate. He does not um, redo anything that he's already set in place in course of action. Now, there may be things that occur after that subsequent to it, but it's not because he's stepping into it. Yeah, the idea of the Alpha and the Omega of being Christ, uh, there's not going to be a redo. And those out there who try to argue such that there was some mistake or some problem, that there's going to be some, some other Christ that comes that does it more perfectly, is just wrong. Because God, once he does one thing, uh, he's going to stick with it because it's going to be the right thing. And that's what you see really throughout history with regard to things. Think about the Christian age. You've got the miraculous being performed, no doubt, there at the beginning of Christ's ministry, establishing who he was, establishing his authority. But subsequent to that, the, the non-miraculous helped continue those things. You just think, after the miracles died out and people were, were talking and people were preaching and people were teaching, those non-miraculous events were perpetuating those things that originated with the miraculous. And that's what you see really throughout the course of history is that there is a definition and a defining moment possibly that may begin something. But just because you have this miraculous beginning doesn't mean it has to continue to be miraculous from there on out. 
Because what God has set in the course of action can continue without His intervention. And that's what you're going to see with regard to His Word. And that's what you're going to see with regard to the Holy Spirit's involvement and those gifts that we may have even today from the Spirit is the idea that we have a gift that continues. Maybe it's it's non-miraculous in nature, but that gift still continues so that we will be able to perpetuate those things which were beginning uh, there in the miraculous. And so I, I want to try to toss that out. I think it's a neat thought process. It's a, something to kind of spur you into a little bit of a thinking and analysis. I'm not saying that there weren't some intervening things. Obviously, there were some miraculous things done during these time periods that, that were involved there. They were for specific purposes, if you look at them. But the beginnings are always marked by this miraculous and extraordinary type beginning. Another thing with regard to the gifts of the Holy Spirit gets into the idea of the measures of the Holy Spirit. And if you ever do any studying with regard to uh, the Spirit, you're going to see the idea that there are different measures that are delineated, uh, that are kind of broken down with regard to what, how much of the Spirit, I guess is what you're getting into. How much of the Spirit do I have? Now, I think that's a misnomer. I don't really like the way that sounds because it's kind of like going to heaven. You're either in heaven or you're not in heaven. You know, you've got the spirit or you don't have the spirit. You know, it's one of those things. It's not a, a half full kind of a thing. You know, I'm half full of the spirit. Thank you. I'm good. You know, that's not what we're talking about here. And I don't want to really mischaracterize that. Uh, that's why the word measure is, is usually used. Uh, but it delineates different types or different roles, different purposes, ultimately, with regard to the degree of the spirit that was given Uh, that we see in the scriptures. And again, this is a a human breakdown. It's not necessarily ever called this necessarily in the scriptures. Uh, And so I want to make that little caveat there. But I think it's a good way to try and distinguish between uh, how we think about the gifts of the Spirit. And how we think of, you know, if our friends are starting talking about the gifts of the Spirit, we might want to nail them down as to what exactly are they speaking about? What are you talking about? Because if you get down to the nitty gritty of it all, uh, we all are blessed with the gifts of the Spirit. The question is, what gifts are we talking about? And so I want us to kind of, in our minds, think about that. Now, if you look at the Scriptures, there's a couple different ways to kind of ferret this out. And you kind of have this in your uh, handouts, I believe, there on the inside. I think it's inside cover, isn't it? Um, Inside left side uh, with regard to uh, the the different measures. So I'm going to go ahead and put them all up here. There's no blanks there with regard to it. Might help us move it along a little bit. But first of all, you see the idea of of without measure. The idea there is they would sometimes call this a full measure of the Spirit. You see that in some of the wordings uh, with regard to it. And there's only one that's ever been described as having the Spirit without measure, and that would be Jesus Christ. Uh, There God gave him full measure of the Spirit. In John chapter 3, verse 34, if you want to look at that, um, there is a descriptive there by John that uh, helps us kind of understand this. And there's some other verses also that kind of go along with this. Again, that distinctive phrase may not be specifically used everywhere, but verse 35 of John chapter 3, it says, The Father loves the Son. Uh, and let, let, Let's just go up to 34. I should have included that. But um, we can even go further. Let's go 31. I like reading on the context here. It says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard of that which he he testifies, and no one receives his his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, and that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. 
The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. He who believes the Son has eternal life, and he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. You see in those two verses, if you didn't catch it, verses 33, I mean, verses 34 and 35 is a combination there of the idea of that, that phrase, without measure, giving the Spirit without measure. Verse 35 kind of clarifies that a little bit. I have given all things unto my, my Son. And you kind of think there's an echoing there of, of other verses that kind of talk about the idea that, that Christ is without limitation of the things that he can do. He has all power. Matthew chapter 28, you know, I come to you with all power. You know, God has sent me with all the power. And so all that has been given unto Christ. There's no one else that's described as this. Uh, no one else has been given with the spirit without measure as this is describing Christ, at least not in the scriptures, at least that I've seen and that I can find. Uh, secondly, you see what is called a baptismal measure. And this would be a, a very large extent, I guess, in some respects, of the idea of, of having um, a, a large measure of the Spirit. I, I would say the greatest measure given to mortals, given to mankind, would be this descriptiveness here. The idea of someone being baptized with the Holy Spirit. And the baptism, of course, it goes from the word that we use today with regard to baptism and being baptizo. Baptizo is an immersion, a full immersion. And that's why when we say you go in the water, you go all the way in the water. That's why, because that word baptizo, it's an idea of being overwhelmed, uh, being immersed. And so this same kind of concept is conveyed with regard to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now you're thinking, wait a second, I can't get in, you know, there's no physical thing for me to get overwhelmed or, or submerged. And you're right, there's not. But it's the, the same kind of a concept there is the idea when Christ or when, I mean, when God poured out his spirit, that he pours it out in such a quantity, in such a, an immediate emphasis or importance or uh, overwhelmingness that it's a kind of a consuming, an all-consuming type of, of endowment of the Spirit. So this baptismal measure of the Spirit is given out to those. Note, I want to say, there's only two times in Scriptures where this kind of context and this kind of descriptiveness is ever used. It's going to be in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 10. There's no other explanation there that anybody has been baptized by the Holy Spirit. There's no other indication that there's going to be a baptism of the Holy Spirit in the future. But these two times are specifically called out. They are looked at for specific reasons uh, there. We don't have time to finish it. We'll pick up here next week. Look at it. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 10. Why would there be a baptism of the Holy Spirit in those as compared to other types of measures of the Spirit elsewhere? Is there a specific reason? Is there a purpose? We'll explore that real quickly next week as we go on. No, we won't do it next week. Put this on your mind and pause it if you can or, or soak on it for two weeks. you got two weeks. Next week is Missions Emphasis Sunday. And we're going to have a special lessons that day uh, focusing on our roles and our jobs as missionaries uh, for God. So keep that in your mind. We'll pick this up two weeks from today. Appreciate it.